Welcome to the Kentuckian, folks. Glad to have you with us. Howdy, y'all. Welcome back to the Kentuckian. There's a phrase, an idea that shows up from time to time that I want to discuss today. I, I first heard or was introduced to this concept a long time ago um, with a Ken Burns documentary. He was a famous documentary maker. Um, a Ken Burns documentary on prohibition. Now, in case you need a bit of a reminder, prohibition was uh, referring both to a law and an era um, when an amendment to the Constitution, this was the law part of it, was passed. This was in the early 1920s, if I remember correctly. An amendment to the Constitution was passed and ratified that made drinking alcohol illegal. Now, it didn't make it a completely illegal substance, um, but recreational drinking in general was banned. A lot of possession, possession of alcohol was banned, but there was, there was exceptions. It wasn't a cut and dried, if you have alcohol, you're going to jail kind of thing. But it was basically illegal to drink alcohol um, for anything other than, a, if I remember correctly, doctor-prescribed medical purposes. But generally, it made alcohol illegal. Now, if you've ever read or seen anything about the Prohibition era, folks like to always say that it was a really lawless time. Nobody, nobody followed the law. Basically, everybody ignored a Prohibition and gave rise to organized crime and all these different things. And something that comes up a lot about descriptions of the Prohibition era is you can't enforce your religious beliefs or you can't enforce morality. And that last bit is what I want to focus on for a few moments this week. That idea of not, you can't enforce morality, you can't enforce your religion, and really coming into separation of church and state is something that is widely misunderstood. There are many misconceptions about that concept. There's many misconceptions about our laws in America and the very idea of law itself that it is really important for us to understand. Um, we have to have the right foundational understanding for how our everyday lives are supposed to work. Sometimes people don't understand or see the value in discussing the basics of law, but it's the same laws that either tyrannize your life or, or make it better. It's the same laws that affect you every day, whether you realize it or not. And it's the same laws that can be manipulated and used by tyrants to destroy you and to destroy your life. And it's something that used to in this country we understood was so important, but nowadays it has fallen out of uh, popularity, if you will. There was an old writer from, I, I can't remember if it was Alexis de Tocqueville or one of the one of the British legal philosophers of the time. I believe it was Alexis de Tocqueville, and he made a comment when he, when he visited America and he wrote about his experiences. Uh, whoever it was, anyway, said that uh, there is no study so common in America as that of law. And I'm paraphrasing, but basically everybody studied law. Every, every person, every American was a student of law to one degree or another. They had a basic knowledge of law and the philosophy of law and why it was important. And that is part of what made America so powerful because each individual took part in their responsibility to understand their government and to take an active part in it as an important element of government. But anyway, I'm getting a little off track here. Let's let's go into the idea of separation of church and state and not you can't enforce morality, that concept. So part of this misunderstanding does stem a lot from the concept of separation of church and state. The common misconception um, is that law and governance are somehow separate from religion. So 
There are many that believe and push for the elimination of any form of Christianity or religion being in government. They don't want the Ten Commandments in courthouses. They don't want references to a belief in God or prayers and oaths or, or uh, legal proceedings on currency or in schools and so on, public schools anyway, because they believe that's a violation of the concept of separation of church and state. Now, while there's a definitely an anti-Christian lean to, to these movements, often from the standpoint of the belief that Christianity is evil, uh, there is also an element of people that think that it's unconstitutional. They don't necessarily have anything against Christianity. Sometimes they consider themselves to be Christian, um, but they misunderstand what the the concept of separation in church and state is and what the Founding Fathers believed when it came to the separation of church and state in general. The Founding Fathers believed... very differently from the way that it's portrayed today, and we will get over that into a few moments. But this idea that of what separation of church and state means today, and really it doesn't line up with what the Founding Fathers meant, but, but this idea, this concept, has carried over into many areas of particular policy. It's carried over to the interpretation of laws, say by judges and justices. Um, if something is deemed, quote-unquote, too religious— say, I don't know, bans on particular substances, um, mind-altering substances. Um, people tend to attribute a lot of the, the opposition to legalizing certain substances as, well, you're just trying to force your religion on me. Um, you know, they start calling it Christian nationalism or some other catchphrase. And, and again, they take away or try and, and disconnect that concept with original American political thought. Basically, what it comes down to is they, they, a lot of these people end up believing, whether they say so directly or not, that any religious aspect in governance in America is a distortion of what the Founding Fathers originally wanted. Now, that's not really right. There's a lot of misconceptions that lead to some of these conclusions. One of the big misconceptions here is the whole separation of church and state thing in, in, at all, the whole concept. The phrase separation of church and state is nowhere in any of the founding laws like the Constitution. It's not in the Constitution. It wasn't a common phrase, per se, especially in the legal the legal writing. It wasn't there at all, not, not, not even not a common phrase. It wasn't there. Um, a lot of it probably comes from this. It's part of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now. You've probably heard that before. Some people have taken this to mean that the government should have no part in religion, um, that, that religion and government should be completely separate. What it was meant to do, when you look at the historical context of the time, is it was meant to prevent the federal government from endorsing or, or, or having an official state religion. One of the main reasons that the pilgrims first came to America at all back in the 1600s was because of religious persecution in England. Now, pilgrims considered themselves Christians. England considered itself a Christian nation, but England had a state religion. It was known as the Church of England. In America, it actually still exists. I believe it still exists in England as well, but it's known as the Anglican Church here in America. But the Church of England, as the official state religion, persecuted people that called them, believed to be Christians or tried to follow Christ that didn't follow the Church of England in various ways and to various degrees. So they did not consider them, they, they had problems with the way the Church of England, um, some of their doctrine and teaching and so on and so forth, but 
even though they disagreed, they were persecuted by the Church of England. Sometimes it was pretty extreme. Sometimes it was relatively minor, but there was a, a large, for a large amount of time, there was a, a significant amount of persecution just because you weren't part of the Church of England. Even if it was pretty tame, a lot of times you would still have to pay fees to the Church of England, you taxes and so, so on and so forth. Maybe there wasn't extreme consequences, but you were punished for not being a member of the Church of England. You were still forced to support it. And those sorts of that sort of political climate and religious climate was what drove the pilgrims to originally go, to go to the Netherlands and then to migrate to the New World and settle in America. It was one of the the initial driving forces behind the people that would eventually found the United States of America or eventually um, secede from England and then, of course, eventually form the United States of America. That's the context. That's why it is so important, why it's made clear that the federal government is not supposed to have an official religion. That's what the First Amendment is talking about when it says it's not respecting an establishment of religion. An establishment, that could be a restaurant, right? Well, it could also be a church. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, the idea of putting it on a pedestal, of supporting it particularly they're not supposed to support a specific denomination. Many of the first settlers came to America because they would be free to worship and practice Christian religion as they saw fit. And that is the key, not God should be excluded from government. I mean, you can't read like anything from the time and come away with the idea that people wanted God out of, out of government. It's just a misconception. You must also remember that some form or fashion of Christianity is what everyone practiced in the colonies. Everyone. You will see throughout this whole period of time that they considered themselves Christian as a whole, just as a people, in official documents and so forth, in writings, in speeches, and everything. So yes, there might have been a handful of, of rare exceptions, but basically, literally, Basically, virtually every single person in the New World, in the colonies, would have considered themselves Christian. So you have to remember that context Context as well. You'll sometimes hear stuff that the founding, some of the founding fathers were atheists and all that stuff. It's just not true. It's usually taking one or two, thing, one or two statements out of context and trying to make it look like that they were atheists. Some of them perhaps had unconventional views on Christianity, but they still considered themselves Christians or at least servants of God. Jehovah. And most of them were were what we would probably consider pretty conventional Christians in the general sense. They they would have considered themselves that. Another misconception that plays into this when it comes in into the separation of church and state and not establish, not respecting any establishment of religion, and the way people misunderstand this today is the I, the idea, the concept that law can exist apart from religion. And this is something I do want to spend a little bit of time on. It's a fundamental misconception of the issue that we're discussing today. Law and governance cannot exist outside of religion, and yet generally it's considered as a, almost always existing outside of religion, which is just not true. For a law to be followed by people, it must be justified. Now, there's a lot of ways to do that. Sometimes it was done at the, the tip of a spear or the, the barrel of a rifle, right? 
Um, that's by force, but that also tends to fall apart very quickly. Even tyrants that do tend to enforce their will at the, the tip of the bayonet will still give some sort of justification for that law, even if people don't really buy into it. But assuming you're not just going to put a, you know, a gun to everyone's head, uh, literally to force someone to do something or try and force someone to do something uh, to follow a certain law, there's always some sort of justification for that law and the reason that it exists, right? There's a why behind the law, not just, well, this is the law and, you know, leave it at that. There's a reason that this law was passed. There's a reason that this law was put into effect and enforced. Now, today in the West, this is often done in a very degenerate way. Even if it's honest, and it's usually not as we've discussed before, laws and the justification for laws always focus on selfish desires. This will make you safer. We've talked about in, in at least one other episode specifically how that's impossible, but it helps make people comfortable. But that's a justification. We are going to pass this law because it'll make you safer. This law is to protect the kids. We're going to this law is justified because it's going to protect children or to protect you. This law is justified because it'll help people that fall on hard times. This law is justified because it will be more equitable for people. When you talk about so-called social justice, this law is justified because it'll put more money in your pocket or even this law is justified because we give you free money. Those are the kinds of justifications that generally show up for law today. It's a very degenerate, shallow justification, but a justification all the same. Now, while some of these considerations are not totally without merit, when it comes to these justifications, even the ones that you could argue have some merit being the main appeal and the main strategy used for law, policy, and governance, um, the problem with all that is that it's all subjective or unguaranteeable, right? I mean, it's just this is what we said, and you are giving a reason at that point, but it's not a reason that is solid. It's subjective. It's not truth. It's not guaranteed. You know, we've talked about safety is unattainable. There's no way to make yourself completely safe, especially for the government to make you completely safe. Any law or policy that is supposed to be helpful to you, to the individual, requires individual actions, and its effectiveness is based on the relative efforts of those enforcing the law and its recipients, even welfare and stuff like that. I mean, there's no way to make it to make it a real solution. Uh, it's a, if it's effective for those purposes at all, it will not be evenly applied. And again, usually these policies aren't effective, um, but we've gone into more detail on that before. The, the really point, the, the main point is that at the end of the day, these sorts of justifications for law that are so common today are not based off of anything or any, at least anything substantive or stable or sure, but it is a justification. Real governance always stems from religion as an absolute standard. Even the current trends do do this, although it rejects God and real standards. The new standard is being whatever feels right. The new standard, religious standard, is whatever helps you, that's okay, that's justified, and the insanity of so-called social justice. So that is the religious justification. It is supposed to be a truth, even though at the same time they often reject absolute truth. But what it'll always come down to is, well, it helps you, so it's justified. That's sort of modern, postmodern, well, I guess I should say postmodern ethics, that there really isn't any truth, but then they do have the truth that if it helps you, then you should do it. But that's basically their justification. That is a religious justification, even if it is a secular religious justification. There's no way for them to prove that. There's no authority behind it. Uh, there's no logic behind it, and there's no way for them to 
quantify scientifically that this is what should be done, but it is a a faith-based belief. That's kind of what I guess I'm getting at with the idea of, of a secular religion. It is a faith-based belief, whether or not it's a faith in, in some sort of deity or the supernatural. The concepts of real justice and proper governance revolves around a moral standard. So this is where we bring it into a little bit of what it has been generally throughout history. The murder, mur, let's take an example. Murder is wrong and should be dealt with by the government, whether whatever that might be. Jail, execution, punish, you know, corporal punishment, whatever. Okay, that's the premise. Why? Why is murder wrong? Because the moral authority says so. Whether that was some pagan deity, some pagan idol, or Jehovah through the Bible, there is a divine motivation for condemning murder and, and many other actions that would be condemned under, under modern laws or laws in the past. That's why murder is wrong, because there is a divine being in this case when it comes to truth, because God said murder is wrong, because Jehovah said murder is wrong. So it's wrong. Stay with me here. A lot of counter arguments um, to the idea the, of moral divine authority in the basis of what is legal and what is not um, have to do with, well, if it actively hurts other people, you can't do that, right? You get into some of the libertarian arguments. You get into a lot of arguments where their basis for a law or what should or shouldn't be controlled or affected or, or um, legislated on by the government is – well, if it hurts other people, you can't do that. Or another another um, concept or, or belief that comes up a lot is, well, if a, a particular society, ethics are determined by society, so if a particular society agrees on X, Y, and Z, then that is right and wrong for that society. In a word, it's subjectivism, right? The hurting other people argument uh, – or somehow based off of survival as social animals because hurting other people, they'll sometimes try and justify it by saying, well, survival, um, you know, like the evolutionary desire for survival or something like that, some nonsense like that. That's fine, I guess, if you agree with it. If that's what you – if you agree, well, yes, you shouldn't hurt other people, and that's the standard for law and governance and legislation. Okay. But who's to say that it has any real value? If that's the, the standard, for sake of argument, we say that's the standard, why is it the standard? Why? I mean, what's the justification? Well, you shouldn't want to hurt other people. Why should you not want to hurt other people? Because you want to survive. Why is survival the ultimate good? Who determines that survival is the ultimate good? Who determines that, that not hurting other people is the ultimate good? It's just something at the end of the day that you still just agree on. So I guess, well, if everyone agrees on it, then it's all right. But then again, not everyone agrees on every little thing. Why is harming someone else bad? If you take the divine, if you take truth, absolute truth out of this argument, how can you condemn harming someone else? Again, if it's survival, why is survival a penultimate? How can you say that? What is your justification? What is the reason... Who says uh, definitively, authoritatively, that harming someone else is bad? Who says definitively, authoritatively, that survival is the ultimate, and so we can determine you know, certain laws when it comes to like harming other people and stuff like that? 
Who's to say it's, it's important at all? Who's to say survival is important? Nobody. That's the point. There is nobody. There is no justification. It's just your idea, and you hope people go along with it. That's all. There's nothing to it. There's no substance. It's an opinion. When you take divine out of it, societally-based ethics run into a similar problem, as you probably already kind of put together. Based off the reasoning that if a society decides it's right or wrong, then it's right or wrong, if that is if that is the premise you go with, then you'd have to come to the conclusion that Hitler was justified because everyone went along with it. The Mayans were justified in their excessive and brutal human sacrifice all the time because everyone went along with it. They agreed to it, so it was it was right for them. The various remote cannibal tribes that 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 butcher and eat explorers, you know, out in the in the dense jung in the rural jungles and in Africa or, or in, in Indonesia and in Polynesia, you know, the, these, there's still places out there where there's people that are violent. And, and there has been throughout, you know, when we were exploring, there were people killed by these, by these cannibal tribes. Well, they're justified because everyone went along with it. If you take the divine out and you say that society determines what's right or wrong, you can justify anything you want. And you can't condemn anybody in a different society. And, and we'll take this a step farther in a second, but that's not to mention the consideration of what about people in those societies that don't agree? Because again, not everyone agrees in every, in every society that this is right or that's wrong. So one, is it just straight majority or mob rule? That seems to be the, the indication. If the majority of people agree that this is right, then it's right. If you accept that premise by that line of reasoning, the people who tried to save people from the Holocaust in Germany in the 40s are evil because they went against the moral standards of their country, of their society. That's the kind of reasoning that it gets to. And you'll occasionally find people that are honest enough to admit that. Anything is justified in any society, no matter how wrong it is, because you take the divine out of it. You take the absolute out of it. So you can justify anything you want as degenerate and horrible and awful as it might be. You can justify murder. You can justify cannibalism. You can justify human sacrifice and, and other stuff. Because if society that's what that society agreed was right, so it was right. Now, I hope that this helps you see just how insane this is. There must be a divine standard or there can be no standard at all. If there is not divine, a divine standard, everything else is subjective. Everything else is, opin is opinion. Genocide, murder, rape, any of that. It's all opinion it, that it's wrong. If you take the absolute, if you take the divine, if you take God out of it. So all laws are eventually based off of some religion, some faith-based belief, even in rare cases, the totally subjective religion of atheism and subjectivism. It always comes back to a standard, and a, a faith-based standard. Now, there's certainly some balance to be had here. Don't get me wrong. This is not an endorsement of what might be called a religious state. Sometimes it might be called a theocracy. A large part of the point is that people should behave themselves based off of truth. You have to have that divine standard, and people need to follow that divine standard individually. Another of the key ideas is that people should be allowed to worship God without the government telling them how to do it. But... There's still truth. There's still an individual responsibility, and these things are not mutually exclusive because no man can be forced to serve God. Each individual, when, when we think about the separation of church and state, the role that religion has in governance 
and in a country society, each individual must examine the truth and make the best decision that he or she can on how to serve God. If our true focus is on truth and our attitude is centered on doing God's will and not ours, we will come to remarkably similar conclusions. Now, a lot of people don't always have that attitude. But there's still the practical aspect and the responsibility and purpose that God gives to government, at least government that is authorized by him. And that is the punishment of evil and the upholding of what is good. So now we've, we've talked about religion in general. We're bringing it into truth. We're bringing it in to, Christ, to Christ, to God, to the Bible. And God lays out what he authorizes government to do, and that's to punish evil and uphold good. So the way, the conclusion that, that our founding fathers came to, and some other people have as well, is that the best option is to let people worship God how they see fit, but to be sure to enforce the clear standards of moral behavior, at least on most things. There might be some exceptions for drinking and some other stuff like that, where there is a moral aspect to it. Um, but for, for other reasons, you, you let people make their own decision on that. That is our solution as Americans. And that is the real separation of church and state. Let people worship God how they see fit, but by and large enforce the moral standard that we find in the Bible. That's, that's the solution. It may not be perfect. It's a human solution. Um, but it's better than most, if not all other human solutions to this problem. And I hope that that makes sense to you. I hope that, that that clicks. I hope that that's helpful for you. One of the big takeaways for you and for me is that we need to consider ourselves and examine ourselves to make sure that we're doing the, our level best to follow the truth, to follow God's word. Because this system is contingent off of people taking up their individual moral responsibility. Another big takeaway for us as we, we finish up here is that the separation of church and state is not a separation of God and state. It doesn't take Jehovah out of government. It is a structure of government that is meant to focus the government and the government's actions on moral behavior, not specific doctrine. Again, I hope that really clears things up for you. I hope that that is understandable, that it's clear, that it's concise and that it answers some of these important questions. And I do hope that you've enjoyed this episode as well. There is much more that could be said on this topic. I actually decided to cut some of what I was originally going to cover in this episode, mainly for the sake of time and seeing how long this episode has taken. I'm glad that I did. Um, we'll hopefully cover some more detail at a later date, though. Anyway, I hope that this has given you something of a solid overview of this issue. It's given you some important tools in considering and examining this issue and talking with others about it, and an expectation of more specific studies on this topic in the future. Please share this episode. It's a small thing for you, but it really does make a huge difference. Don't forget our various ways to connect with the Kentuckian, which are linked in the description for this episode. And thank you all so much for listening and for your continued support. And a special thank you, uh, as always, to my patrons. If you'd like to support me in a more personal way, my Patreon is also linked below in the description. And remember, friends, as long as you and I are doing what's right, we make a real difference in this old world. The Kentuckian, trying to make a difference one person at a time.